Good morning. Um, that's another just a great day to be in the house of the Lord. I wanted to take just a moment. Most of you know about my finger. Um, <laughs> it's been a royal pain. I didn't realize how just extremely right-hand dominant I am in everything. First time I went to brush my teeth, I looked at that toothbrush and I was like, you will obey me. <laughs> and I hit my nose more times than I got in my mouth. So, but fortunately, I've been getting better with my left hand. So things are going good. Um, I did have a couple, I mean, God's just been using this. Um, you know, you always want God to, you know, humble you and, and, and work in your life. And, but sometimes you wish he would do different things to do that. And <laughs> had a reaction to the medicine, which put me back in the emergency room a couple weeks ago. And from then I've experienced some mental things that I've never had in my entire life. And it's forced me to just depend on the Lord in a mighty way. And so it's been many nights I wake up and I just got my phone. I'm just reading through scripture. But I'm just so thankful. And I only say that because God is there and he's not, he's, he's, he doesn't leave you to those things when you, when you really call on him. And I, I'm so thankful that he's given me peace in those moments where you just, your mind goes a little like, I don't know what's happening. And so anyhow, things are going well and, uh, and I'm thankful for what God is doing through this. And I, I really hope to be able to throw a good spiral very quickly. So it's really bothering me. Watching me throw left-handed is pretty comical. So, <laughs> But we are in the book of Romans. Uh, we, we jumped out and did a couple little series. We're back in the book of Romans, and I'm excited. I'm preaching today on Romans 3, 27 through 31 on a, on a topic that really hits home to me, uh, something I had to work through uh, many, many years ago because I grew up kind of believing that it was faith and works to salvation. And when I realized that it's all Christ, all in faith, but then you, I've had many debates, and just as you're working through that, and this is, this is Paul's message, just what we see all throughout his letters, all throughout the Bible, that you, you and I need a Savior, period. And to pretend that we have some part in it is just ridiculous. So we're in Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. I want to dive right in here. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up. That will also be on the screen. And let's stand in honor of God's Word as we read Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. Romans chapter 3, verse 27 here. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you didn't just leave us here to just try to figure it out on our own until you take us home, but that you've given us instruction. And God, we're so thankful for what you did for us. I pray now that as we walk through this, that God, you would just open our hearts to your word. And God, just conform us to what it says. Don't let us try to take your word and conform it to our lives. God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to see th three things here that I think Paul is really trying to bring out. The first thing is that he says there's no room for boasting. Go back to verse 27. It says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Now that word then literally means where, therefore, and it points us back to the previous passage that Pastor Aaron talked about last week. And when we look back at verses 24, he tells us that there's all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. In verse 24, it says that we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now here it is. This is why he did it. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When we get to 27, it says, then what becomes of our boasting? It all points back to what God did. And the reality is he did everything. He did everything for us. And it was all to show that he's the one who's just. And he's the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So Paul says, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Literally, it means cut off, shut the door. There's no room for it. And again, why? Because boasting is rejoicing in one's own accomplishments. It's literally the glorifying of oneself. How is it that you and I could do that if Christ did everything? We can't. That's the whole point that Paul's making here. He goes on in verse 27 at the end of that. He says, but what kind of law is it excluded? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. See, there's not a law that says you're not allowed to boast. But at the same time, if you fulfilled the law, it wouldn't exclude your boasting because that would be the only grounds in which you had to boast. So it's by the law of faith, right, that we can no longer boast. And, and, and Paul talks about this, and we'll get into it next week. He, he shows us that if we could keep the law, that wouldn't humble us. That would give us every room to boast. In verse uh, 2 of chapter 4 of Romans, he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God, because that didn't happen, right? Before God, Abraham wasn't righteous according to the law, neither are you or I. And if we were, then we'd have every room to boast, but not before God, because we didn't do that. Last week, when we just talked about it, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 23, in Romans chapter 2, we saw this a while back. I believe it was Seth was preaching on this. Paul says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Because the reality of it is, if you're going to boast in your own accomplishments, you're making a mockery of it because you've accomplished nothing. You can't boast in upholding the law when you break it all the time. In fact, Paul says that's dishonoring God. Yet the reality of this is as a Christian, we're saved. We're justified. We've been declared righteous. We have eternal life. And we get to share in the glory of Christ in in heaven. So why is our boasting excluded? It's by the law of faith, right? Again, you did nothing. Christ did it all. And this is going to be very repetitive because Paul is very repetitive because for some reason we can't grasp this. Because the reality of it is, is pride is a huge issue with us. We want to earn something. We want to do something. But the reality of it is, is you can't do what God requires. He did it for you. Therefore, there's no room for boasting. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, a very familiar passage For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, it's a gift, not a result of works. Now, I want to compare what a result of works would be in Romans 4.4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Right? Paul just keeps laying this out over and over and over. If you actually did the work, it's not a gift, it's not grace, it wasn't given to you, it's actually owed to you. And I've had to think about this a lot. Growing up, I grew up in a church that promoted this faith and works that you had to keep yourself saved in order to get to heaven. And as I started to study through that and started to realize that's the furthest thing from the truth, that a sinner like me could somehow be righteous enough to be viewed godly, And I started to think, if I was going to claim that, 
then I would have to get to heaven, stand before God Almighty and say, you owe me salvation. I don't know about you, but that kind of scares me to have that kind of attitude. We're told in 1 Corinthians 1 that God chose the foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. And he chose what is low and despised in the world. And we're told that he did that in verse 29, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If we're going to boast, we boast in what Christ did for us. We don't pretend we did anything. That's ridiculous. And it's so interesting how he says, your righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, all of those were given to you by God. And for you to claim that you have somehow, if you're going to boast in yourself, then you're saying, I am righteous, I sanctify myself, and I will ultimately redeem myself. Do we see how ridiculous that is? And it might be okay sitting in a room where we might look at other people and say, I'm better than them. But again, you're going to answer to God Almighty, the one who's called holy, holy, holy. I don't think that's the attitude that you're going to have when you approach him, especially when we know he's the one who did everything for us. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul again just keeps saying the same thing. He says, for who sees anything different in you? For what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you've received it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? He just keeps going on and on. I mean, God has blessed us. He gives us spiritual gifts as we're his children. But who are we to boast as if we did something? Everything we have, we receive from the Lord. So where's our boasting? The only boasting would be in what he has done for us. See, the law requires perfection. You and I fail horribly. Yet God graciously gives us Christ's righteousness, which perfectly fulfills the law and makes us right with him. Paul says, our boasting has been excluded. It's been shut out. It's been cut off. There's no room for it because of the law of faith. He goes on in verse 28, the second thing we see, that you are saved by faith. Again, very repetitive all throughout his stuff, but we're going to look at this because it's something that even today we still don't get for some reason. In verse 28, he says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, this is a hot topic definitely at the time of the, the first century church. It's a hot topic today. It's what divides most denominations. And yet, it's what Paul talks about all throughout his letters. We just went through Philippians. We went through Galatians. Now we're into Romans. This is all he keeps talking about. He says that we are justified by faith apart from works. Now, the word justified means declared righteous. But it's not a righteousness that you and I acquire. It's a divine righteousness that we have been declared divinely righteous, the same righteousness as God. And that happens by faith, he says. The only way you can be saved is to be righteous. Again, God requires perfection. So in order to be perfect, you got to be perfect, right? And we're declared perfect because of faith in Christ for what he did for us. And before we think, well, no, it's, if, if I do these things, you can't do those things. And I always find it interesting that somebody who can say, well, I, I do everything now. What about before? How do you erase that? How do you go back and get rid of the sin prior? And what kind of just God would just say, okay, that didn't count. Now, your since you're trying, we'll figure it out. No, he demands perfection. And that shouldn't, I mean, again, it should cause us to rejoice all the more that we couldn't do it and he did it for us. We know that God has Jesus. He says, who knew no sin became sin for us, right? He was the substitution atonement. In verse 24 of last week, we saw that we're justified by grace as a gift. And in verse 25, it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, propitiation, I don't know if I'm saying it right. It sounds like it's a weird word. But it literally means a sin offering. 
which appeases the wrath of God. And how is it to be received? Verse 25 says, to be received by faith. Again, this should be so obvious to us. What could we possibly do to earn something from God? The only biblical answer in all caps is nothing. You've done nothing to deserve anything from God. To further point this, we're going to stay with what, uh, what Paul says here. I want to just show you some very clear passages of Scripture that don't need interpreted, that clearly say the same thing. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Galatians 3.11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3.24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Philippians 3.9, And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Romans 3.20, we saw last week, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Acts 13.39, we're also told, And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Now what's interesting is the word freed here is the same Greek word justified. And so literally what it says, And by him, that's Christ, who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So what we can say with certainty is that there's one thing that can't justify you, and that's the law. Now, why is that? It's not that the law is bad. It's not that the law, you know, isn't right. The fact you can't do what the law demands you to do. Paul says in Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. It's not enough to have the law that the Jews were claiming. It's not enough to do some of them. It's not enough to be viewed as a person who follows the law. You have to do all of everything that's written in the law which is impossible. That's why he says cursed is the one. James 2.10 also says, for everyone who keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. I think sometimes it's easy for us to look at the big sins and say, I've never done that. Right? And we start to think that we're more righteous than we are. The reality of it is, if you're a person like that, you should thank God for, for giving you the ability to control yourself in some of those ways. But again, Jesus points out a whole other thing. Your thoughts are sins. If you hate your brother, you've already committed murder. If you look with lust, you've already committed adultery. And again, we already saw all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law can't justify you because you can't live up to the law. That's the problem. And the good news, as Pastor Aaron talked about last week, is Jesus did it for you. I've often talked with people that will lay out two conditions. And they'll say, but what about that innocent, sweet old lady who just does her best the kindest person you'll ever meet. You're telling me that God's going to send her to hell just because she doesn't believe in Jesus? And see, the reality of it is, is if she was innocent, then the answer would be no. But she's not innocent. We know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter how we're perceived by others. How does the holy God perceive our sin? When Jesus became sin for us, he couldn't even look upon him. Then we see the other person, which we see the Judaizers claiming that they're the ones, they're the example of righteousness, right? 
We already talked about that. Paul says, you're the ones who are dishonoring God. You're the ones who are actually being blaspheming the name of the Lord because of how you're claiming to do what you're clearly not doing. In Galatians 5.4, Paul says, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified the law, you have fallen away from grace. And what he's talking about, and we, we, we dealt with this in Galatians, if you're going to hold to the law, You've put your trust in the law. You're severed from grace. You can't have it both ways. You're either going to put your trust in Jesus who fulfilled the law, or you're going to put your trust in yourself who can't. There's only two options. Trust Jesus or trust yourself. Paul goes on in verses 29 through 30. It won't be on the screen, but just he kind of gives us another analogy as to why this is the case. He said, Is God the God of the Jews only? Or is he the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Right? This has already been established all throughout his letters, the Jerusalem Council, the letters have all been sent out. They know that God is the God of all people, right? And he goes on to say, since God is one, right? And that goes back to Deuteronomy, that he's going to do the same thing for everyone. He says he's going to justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. There's no distinguished by and through. The reality of it is he's just going to save everyone the same. He's one God, and he's the God of all. Now, it's very clear and it's kind of frustrating how clear it is, and yet how much confusion there is. But people like to bring up one verse, and so we're going to deal with that today. It's a verse I've had to deal with a lot. It's a, deal, a verse that I've been yelled at and claimed to be a horrific sinner for not you know, falling into this. But it's also, if I'm honest, it's a verse that kind of catches us off guard sometimes. And so I want to walk through this because this is the point of what Paul is making. But I think there is a difference when Paul writes the letter. Not everybody had the letter of James. It wasn't written yet. We do have the letter of James, so we can see it all at the same time. So I don't want us to be confused about one when we, someone tells us something different about the other. James 2.24, most of you guys know this. It says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, the very first time I read that, I was like, hold on a second, we've got a problem, right? How can this be? It surely looks like they're disagreeing. It surely looks like there must be a contradiction, or I've misunderstood something, right? And, and again, we come back to the choice. Are we going to trust the Word of God, or are we going to trust our own understanding? The reality of it is, is God's Word is true. He's, we were told that He's a God, not a God of confusion, right? So I want to compare Paul and James. And so the both verses will be on the screen here. Romans 3.28 and James 2.24. Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Justified by faith, justified by works. Now this is very important for us to understand because this is what people like to point at the Bible. See, the Bible is full of contradictions. You can't trust it. And so I want to walk through, what are we supposed to do with that? We've just read 10 verses that clearly say that you are not justified by works of the law and that you're justified by faith. There's only one verse in the Bible that says that. So there's a temptation to write that off and say that one doesn't count, or, which is ridiculous, but there's even a more ridiculous one, to take that one and say everything else you've read in the entire Bible is wrong and that one's right. The reality of it is they're not contradicting. They're saying the same thing. And we need to figure out why. How do we reconcile that? And I don't want you to be caught off guard like I was many times years ago when someone brought this up to me and I didn't know how to answer. So when we look at what's going on here, 
I want to take us back to some of the other stuff we have in Scripture. I don't want to just jump right into, here's what I think. That's the, no one cares what I think, okay? And so, and I find it interesting too, a pastor has no authority. The authority is when they preach the Word of God. Just because I stand up here and say something, there's no authority in that. But God's Word, that's where the authority is. So let's go back and let's see, are Paul and James on the same page anywhere else? So a matter of fact, they are. Let's go back to where this was settled in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. And to give you a little bit of background of what's going on, we've talked about this when we went through Galatians. At the Jerusalem Council, you had some Judaizers coming in. And if you remember, I think it's in like verse 10, there's some that say it is necessary that the Gentiles be circumcised and abide by the law of Moses in order to be saved. That's where this whole thing was. They're telling all the, the Gentiles, yes, you can be saved only if you become like us because we're better than you. That's, that was the whole thing. And, and again, it's, that might sound ridiculous, but we talked about this. They were given the law. They were God's chosen people. I mean, for them to, to find out all of a sudden that that didn't matter and they had, they're the same as the Gentiles, that was a hard pill to swallow. We get that, right? But that was the whole issue of the Jerusalem Council. So the apostles, the, the elder, all the disciples come together and they say, let's settle the issue of whether the Gentile, if there's something else tied to faith in order for salvation. And what's interesting in here is we're going to hear from Paul, we're going to hear from Peter, and we're going to hear from James. So when we look at Acts 15, and again, not all this is on the screen, some of the verses will be, but Peter gets up and says, look guys, got a little bit going on here. Um, Peter gets up. And he said, they're, they're arguing about it. Paul and Barnabas are trying to say everything that took place with the Gentiles. And then the people are like, no, it's necessary that they get circumcised and all this. And Peter stands up and he reminds them what happens with him and Cornelius. And about a month ago, I preached on that. Again, Peter goes to Cornelius, a Gentile, a centurion. He preaches the gospel. They believe by faith, receive the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues the exact same way. It was just to show Peter that God is a God of one. He saves everyone the same way. So he gets up and he, he reminds them of that. Then we're told that then Paul and Barnabas get up and continue to share. And then the third person pops up and it's James. Right? Now let me back up real quick just so we can see what Paul, uh, Peter said. In verse 11, Peter says, But we believe that we are saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So after he explains what happened with Cornelius and the rest of the Gentiles in his home, he says, Therefore we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now I know it doesn't say saved through faith, but grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is the gift. We've already talked about if you earn something, that's a due. That's not a gift. It's not getting something you don't deserve if you actually earned it. So Paul says we, or Peter says, this is what we believe, that we're all going to be saved by faith. And then James steps up and he says, brothers, what we've just heard fulfills the Old Testament. And I want you to see, this was James' opportunity to let us know if he's actually saying something different than Paul. In verse 19, James says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. But then he goes on, he says, but we should write to them to abstain from some of the pagan stuff that they grew up in and the, the things that they're doing that are causing a stumbling block. That's not very ridiculous for James to expect them to live like a Christian, right? But they all came to an agreement. It says, I believe in verse 21 or something like that, it says they all agreed in one accord. And in one accord, they agreed that you're saved by faith, period. However, that faith should result in a way that you live your life and that should be evident, for the Gentiles, if they're truly saved, they should not continue in a lifestyle that's hostile towards God. But if they believe in Jesus, don't trouble them anymore. That's all it takes. So what's James saying then? If he agrees with Paul, if he agrees with the salvation by faith, what is he getting at here in verse uh, 24? 
Well, we know because he, he gives us a question that he's responding to in verse 14 of James chapter 2. I encourage you just to go over to James chapter 2. Look at this with me. So James chapter 2 and verse 17, or 14, sorry. He poses a question, and that verse 24 is a res- the answer to this question. The question is, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but not have works? Can that faith save him? Do you see the question that he's responding to? Can that faith save him? Again, he's affirming that faith saves. But a faith that has nothing to prove is genuine, can that faith save him? He goes on and gives us an analogy that we see that's very consistent as a test of our faith. He says in verse 15, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Right? So here you have somebody claiming to have faith, and yet no, no good works, no nothing, like there's no life changed, to the point that he even sees someone in need, and just, eh, whatever. This is very consistent all throughout Scripture. 1 John 3.15 says, But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the, God, the love of God abide in him? This implies that one of the ways you know that God's love abides in you is how you respond to people in need. How you respond to the least of these. I remember my dad saying when he got saved, the first thing he noticed was that he had a burden for his workers that he worked with. He looked at them different. He cared the fact that they might die not knowing the Lord. We're not talking about when you get saved that all of a sudden you do this, 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 and if you don't do this, this, and this, therefore you're not saved. What we are saying, though, is that you're a new creation in Christ. Something changed. And what we see consistently throughout Scripture is that how you look at other people. What did Jesus say? That you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the first and great commandment. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, right? He says that encompasses the whole law. One of the good tests of your faith is how you view other people, how you view the lost, how you care for the other saints that we're told. And we see this play out in how Jesus describes the judgment in Matthew 25 as well. Look at verse 44. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And they're going to get cast off. How we view other people is a good test. Paul's in agreement with that. I'm going to go a little out of order here. But in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Paul's saying the same thing. If you're truly saved and the Spirit dwells inside you, Should something different have taken place? Right? What James is talking about is this lip service. Hey, I've got faith. You know, I've got nothing to prove it, but I got faith. You can't you can't come at me, right? There's a story in Acts chapter 19 that I've always found fascinating. We're told that there's seven priests that are seeing the disciples cast out demons. And they decide they're going to try to do the same thing. And they say. It says that they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had an evil spirit, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. What's fascinating is how this evil spirit responds. It says he answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
And it says that the man leaped on them, mastered all seven of them. They left them fleeing, naked, and wounded. And what I find interesting about that is because they were claiming something that they had no right to claim. God was working through his apostles and through his disciples to do supernatural things. And these people come up and they're saying, like, we're, we're telling you in the name of Jesus that Paul proclaims. He's like, who are you? There's no relationship there. You can say what you want, but it doesn't mean that it's true, right? Some religions will say that they believe in the Lord Savior Jesus Christ. Except when you talk to them, they don't believe in Jesus as the Son of God. They don't believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. They don't believe he's the only way to heaven. Yet they said the right thing. What James is attacking is this notion that just because you say something, that it's actually so. Right? I can tell you that I can fly. The natural response is like, let's see that. Right? No, I don't feel like it. But I can Okay, if I wanted to, I would. I can say whatever I want to say. I can say I got $50 million in the bank. Don't mean that's there, right? <laughs> By the way, I don't have anything close to that. <laughs> so. But the reality of it is, is when you actually had to say I could fly, I tell you right now, I wouldn't tell anyone I could fly. I'd be moonwalking around six inches off the ground waiting for somebody to say something, right? I'm going to prove it, right? And that's what Paul says. You know, he's like, show me your faith apart from works, I'm going to show you my faith by my works, right? This is the whole point that James is talking about. Just because we say something does not mean it's true. So what's going on here? Why does James say that we're justified by works? He's answering the question. He, and earlier in James, and we're not in James, so we're not going to go through all this, but earlier in James he quotes Genesis 15, 6, where he acknowledges that Abraham believed God and was counted as righteousness, just like Paul said. But then he goes on to say the reason we know that Abraham actually believed because he was willing to do what God told him to do. It's like someone, again, who says, I believe it with everything in me, that the only way to be saved in a car crash is to put my seatbelt on. And then when they're about to get hit head on, they take their seatbelt off. Wouldn't we question what they actually believe? What James is talking about is just because you say you have faith doesn't mean that you actually do. And the reality of it is, is if you actually have faith, it will manifest itself in certain ways. And Paul is in complete agreement. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. They're talking to two separate audiences. Paul is talking to the Gentiles who've been convinced by the Judaizers that believing in Christ is not enough. That you actually have to be circumcised, uphold the law in order to have salvation. He says, not at all. In fact, if you're going to do that, you've rejected the grace. James is talking to the ones who are pretending like, hey, I believe in Jesus, therefore I can live however I want to live. And he says, that type of faith, you need to question whether that can actually save you or not, because if you are truly saved, you're not going to just run from what God commands you to do. In fact, if you are truly saved, your life is going to be the best model of that. But we're not clinging to that for our salvation. The final thing as we close here, Paul is in complete agreement with what James is saying as well. They're not contradicting each other at all. They're talking two separate things. But the last thing we see is that Paul says faith upholds the law. Look at verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. Literally means let it never be said. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Again, Paul is in the same agreement here, and he's going to talk about it extensively in chapters 6 and 7 of Romans. That being saved by faith changes how you live, and that should be evident. But again, you say that, and I've heard people like, well, I can't see this specific work in your life, therefore I'm going to question your salvation. No, there's not a specific work 
that we're talking about here. It's a life, it's a sanctification process that God does, not us. But something should happen. We should recognize a change for sure. But just for the sake of uh, argument here that Paul is in agreement, these won't all be on the screen, but Romans 6, 1 through 2, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 7, 22, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. This doesn't sound like somebody who says you can just say you have faith and live how you want. In fact, Paul is the one who says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I want to look at Ephesians 2.8. 9 and 10, one more time, just to clarify this. This is, this is a troubling thing for me, and I've got many friends that are hung up on this big time. In Ephesians 2, let's look at it again. For by grace you're saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But notice verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God beforehand prepared that we should walk in them. I want us to notice what's going on here. You are saved through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. We have no right to boast except in the Lord for what he did for us. But we are created, and that creation, that new life in Christ, is for good works, which God beforehand prepared that we should walk in them. Do you guys see that? You're not saved by faith in works. You're saved by faith, which produces works. That's the evidence. That's why Paul says, test yourself. See whether you're in the faith or not. If you're living more pagan than you were before, maybe something didn't change, right? And I would say that a good test of that is how you view other people. I think we see that very consistently. We're not perfect. We're called to be holy as our God is holy, but we're not perfect. But again, that's where we (laughs) cling to what Jesus did for us. I get why it's so hard and confusing because we're told to live a certain way, but then we're told just to believe in Jesus. Well, if we don't have to live this way, we've got to focus on Jesus, then why does it matter if we live this way? Well, it matters if we live this way because he saved us so we didn't have to live the way we were living anymore, right? You guys see the difference in that? And I know it gets confusing, but God, he's freed us from the bondage of sin so we can start to live a life that looks more like him. And if you get saved like I did at seven, by the time I'm 90, if I look worse than I did at seven, then I've got to question something. I'm not going to be like Christ until I cross over, but I should look a whole lot more like him. But I also want to acknowledge the fact that sometimes internally we can struggle with this. I listen to John MacArthur a lot. I like how he preaches. And he was asked one time after preaching for 60-some years, he says, like, where are, like in your sanctification process, do you feel like you're, you're much better? He's like, no. He said, the reality of it is, is I sin far less than I did. But as I've grown closer to the Lord, I recognize how wretched my sin actually is. The the longer we get in our life as we're being sanctified, the more we're going to hate the sin that we have. Yet outwardly, we're not going to sin as much because God is sanctifying us. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 that we, with all of creation, groan, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. We are stuck in a sin-cursed body that wants to please itself, yet the inner man desires to please the Lord. There's a constant battle. As we close, I just want to look at 1 John, who who shows us this very clearly. 
In verse John 2, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He goes on to explain that one of the ways we know that we're him is if we obey his commandments. If we do what he's called us to do, if we walk in the way he walked. But again, he's writing that to let us know we're not to sin. But if we do, we have an advocate in Christ Jesus. No one is saying that you can sin and get to heaven, doesn't matter what you do. What we're saying is the only way to heaven is to trust Jesus for our righteousness. To trust our own would be just flat foolish. And Paul says, you have no room to boast unless it's in the Lord, because you did nothing and he did everything. So I'm going to ask the praise team to come, and if you'll take a moment and just bow your head as we reflect. I have to imagine that I'm not the only one who've struggled with this. I'm not the only one who's got friends. I have friends that are literally terrified at night to fall asleep, that they might fall off the bed, hit their head, and die without asking for forgiveness first, and they might go to hell. I think that is a horrific trap of the devil. Paul made that abundantly clear in Galatians. He says, if the apostles or an angel comes with a different gospel, let them be accursed. This is a heavy thing that weighs a lot of people down. And so if this is something that you struggle with, I want to encourage you to take a moment to just ask God to make this real to you. Cling to his word. I want to encourage you to do what I did and what my dad did when we first were diving into this. Go to the word. Read everything you can possibly read and ask God to open up your eyes to what he's actually saying. It is abundantly clear. All the way back in Genesis, we needed a Savior. And the reason we did is because we can't save ourselves. But a true Christian won't take that as a, as a free pass to sin. We're to test ourselves. Make sure that we actually have genuine faith. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for what you did for us. And God, I pray that our pride wouldn't creep in and steal away some of the glory that's yours. God, there is no room for us to rejoice or glorify ourselves. God, our actions deserve eternal damnation. Yet praise be to God that you sent yourself to take our place, to live perfectly, to pay for our sins, and then for you to give us his righteousness. God, there's a reason when we get a crown of glory, we're going to stand up and bow down and give it back to you. Because it's not ours. You're the one who gave it to us. God, I pray now as we respond through song that if there's anyone here who's wrestling with this, that God, you'd give them the peace that you promise, that they would have peace with you, that they would fully cling to Jesus as their salvation and let go of their own just futile efforts to earn righteousness. God, I also pray that if there's someone here who's struggling with sin, that God, you'd remind them of what you've called them to. That we're no longer slaves to sin. You've given us the ability to walk like you. But that doesn't mean we're perfect. And when we stumble, God, I pray that we call on Jesus, who's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the time you've given us. Be with us now as we respond through song, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.